Good morning. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it still feels weird saying that here. And I was, I don't know why I thought about this this morning when I was driving over here, and this has nothing to do with what I'm about to talk about, but it was a year ago that, some of you guys remember this, and I was reminded, I was actually here. It was a year ago that I was just a guest speaker, and we're coming to this time in our life when we were just spiritually homeless, and we didn't know what was going to happen next. Where was God going to lead us? You know, could he move us across the country? Could we move to another state? Could we move to a different type of ministry? How would I really be serving? And just be able to see, I was just reflecting this morning, just how God has just still put put together so many small details. When I came here a year ago, I was just a guest speaker, just somebody to help relieve Josh. <laughs> and how God put everything together, how he's so in control of so many of the details, where we ended up at a place that's so close to home <laughs> here in Hayward. And just like, man, I'm having fun. <laughs> so it's probably a good time just to be able to reflect on that. Because in some some of you guys do remember that I was here a year ago, but some of you guys don't remember. Was he really here? What did he even talk about? I talked about faith about a year ago, anyway. Because <laughs> we've seen this pattern before in our lives, we were able to follow, follow God in faith in our lives. But anyway, so, but today we're talking about, we're continuing the book of Daniel. I mean, you might, might have heard this before. Pride comes before the fall. Pride is not something that we need to be proud of. Because a lot of times when I was younger in my life, my parents have always told me the one thing that I had an issue with growing up was, and they would always tell me, Daniel, you have an issue with pride. I had a lot of pride growing up, and, and, and just, just as a kid, it just, it, between me and my brothers, maybe it was the competition and whatnot. But then I noticed that I started to recognize pride in my own life, that pride was what was keeping me from being vulnerable to others. Pride was what kept me from asking for help a lot of times. I could do this myself. I don't need help. And it kept me, I would say pride was also what had kept me to really release my life to God, build to come to him in faith a little bit later in life. I kind of, kind of looked at that and really I just, that's probably the same pride that kept King Nebuchadnezzar, what took him so long for him to be able to see God and to be able to Return to his life. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis who talks about pride. He tells us that a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And it takes courage for us to look up, but our pride is just obscuring our view of God. And as we've been going through the book of Daniel, it, we've seen that it takes courage to be able to stand in, in, for our values, not compromising them. It takes courage to be able to stand in the fire, in the midst of when everybody else wants you to be just like everybody else around them. And in Daniel chapter 4, actually three weeks ago that we got the first half of it, we saw the part where King Nebuchadnezzar, how he was starting to realize this is how I came to faith, do another vision. And in that vision, what he saw was that, you know, I, and he wanted to do interpretations. So, you know, I saw, I had this dream where I saw this tree that was just growing up, just reaching out and be able to just give this shade and just nutrients to everything around it. But all of a sudden, a watcher came down from heaven and just chopped and just 
that tree down to a stump bound by iron. And then the stump that was bound by iron would somehow turn into this animal. And this animal just started grazing the ground and just on all fours. And it was just wet from the dew from the morning. And Daniel interprets that tree, telling the king, that tree, that tree is you. And that watcher, that is an angel of God that's going to come down and strike you down because of your pride. But, O king, you can repent. You can turn. Stop oppressing the poor. You have an opportunity to change your ways. But pride was what's stopping him from seeing who God is. And the main point, Pride, I mean, his pride was just as great as his power. And the main point I have this morning is that our pride is what obstructs our view of God and keeps us from worshiping him. And we can be humbled by God or humbly worship him. So in Daniel chapter 4, we're going to have it on the screen, but as well, if you guys want to turn to it with me in your, in your Bibles as well, we're going to see the second part, of, see his response and how he took to the, to the message. In verse, chapter, sorry, chapter 4, verses 28 to 30, we see the pride, the king's response. So all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power? as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. After Daniel, I just told him, King, you got to watch out for your pride. And Daniel had this courage to build a, inside of him, like, I'm going to confront this king. What if he throws me back in the fiery furnace? And for 12 months, the king did not change his mind. I mean, this is probably not the first time that the king walked out onto his roof to look at it. Like, wow, look at this great place that I built. Multiple times it's probably happened. But something happened was differently this time, though. And for the king, for the, for the context in the ancient Near East, during the time of Babylon, there were two of the ancient seven wonders of the world within his city. One, of which we may have heard of, called the, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. That was one of the seven ancient seven wonders of the world. But archaeologists, just for a disclaimer, they have not found it. But, of course, we've read enough about it to know that it did exist. So that was one of the seven ancient wonders. And the other ancient wonder that he had was actually his palace. This palace that he was standing on and looking out. Now, we know that archaeologists have found bricks in that area where it actually has Nebuchadnezzar's name. He stamped his name on the bricks that he used to build his own palace. That's how much he liked what he was building. And just for another thing about the ancient Near East, when I was reading, he's walking on his roof. Now, just for ancient Near East, their roofs were flat back then, okay? So they weren't like our typical slope. Like, like, like when I, as a kid, I was kind of climb on my roof. My parents would tell me, get off because it's dangerous. No, this is perfectly safe for him to be able to do that. The roofs were flat and almost in a, a pyramid-shaped ziggurat. So this building layers and layers. Think, how, build, how, how big can I build my uh, palace to be? And it's probably the greatest and the grandest building that they had in Babylon at the time. And he was able to just walk and look at, is this not the great Babylon that I have built? Looking at his gardens, looking at just the city that he has. And we kind of look at that. It's like, well, that's kind of silly to think that he would even do, even think that way. But if we're not careful, we do the same in our own lives as well. Because I remember as a kid growing up and just 
in junior high or in high school, it's looking at my grades sometimes, a report card, like, are these not the grades that I studied so hard to get? Going to college, are these not, is this not the degree that I earned? Is that not the house that I bought? Is that not the cars that I have? I mean, it's kind of silly for us to kind of think about that way. But, well, I kind of earned it, but then we forget that everything that we have is from God. In this verse in Colossians 1.17, I have it all on the screen for us. It, it says that, <laughs> Colossians 1.17, next one. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things, not just some things. I mean, think for a moment, like even the breath that we have, like just take a, take a deep breath in and let it out. That breath that you and I just took is a gift from God. Try to listen to your own heartbeat. We weren't even controlling that. Involuntary. Is every, I mean, how long can we even go without a heartbeat? I don't even know the science behind that. But everything that we have, it's all given to us from God. And it's so silly for us to think that everything that we've earned, well, that, that was done by me. It kind of reminded me of a few years ago when we took our kids to the movies. And it was the first, you know, when you get older with kids, you only watch cartoons now in, in movie theaters. <laughs> And we finally find, okay, we got to find a really, something that they would really enjoy because movies are just so ridiculously expensive nowadays. So I remember the first time we took them by, you know, we brought them to the movie theater, and we walked past the uh, overpriced concession stands, right? And my older son looks at us, he's like, hey, Dad, can we buy popcorn? And I said, no. <laughs> it's too expensive. You know how much these tickets cost? But he was really relaxed. And, of course, sometimes as parents, you may have done this as well. It's like, well, if you want it, why don't you pay for it yourself? Knowing that they don't have money, so they can't do that, right? So what had happened was that after we watched the movie and got home, and he had started saving his allowance for perhaps the next time we could go. So then the next time we go to the movie, he's like, Dad, can I buy popcorn? Like, no, you can't. You buy it for yourself. Like, well, I saved enough. Oh, don't, don't, don't waste your money on that, right? It's like, but but I, I can't, I said it, right? So I, I allowed him to do that. So went to the movies, and he got, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's spending nine bucks on this thing. And he does it. So, you know, you have to pay for yourself. It's really cute, you know, he's like paying for it with his own cash that he saved up, just doing little chores around the house. And he, he's so proud of himself when we check out, he got the popcorn. He's like, Okay, at this point, I should be an encouraging father and tell, okay, thank you for doing this for us, for the family. I really appreciate what you've done. And it really immediately, I remember my younger son, Jordan, said, well, looks over to Josiah, like, you know, Daddy really paid for that. Which is true. I mean, it's kind of cute that he thinks that, yeah, you know, I earned all this stuff, you know, and I, I got this for the family, but who gave it all to him? Who provided all those resources? And a lot of times, in a ways, when we think, oh, wow, I created so much in my own life, who gave us every breath that we have? Who gave us every heartbeat? Who gave us all the resources that we have in our own lives to be able to get to where we are today, to have the car that we even drove in, to have the bed that we even slept on? And that's when we have built have the reason that everything that we have, all things, come from God. And that's what the king was starting to get to understand in his life. And it's good to be humbled at our, in, in these times in our lives. To understand where we are in our lives. To not think so highly of ourselves. 
Martin Luther, he tells us, and I have another quote here on the screen, it reminds us, humility or even humiliation is the precondition for knowing God. Only someone who is humbled or crushed before God can truly know him. And the king was warned. You're going to be humbled by God or you can humbly worship him. Because his pride, it, it was just causing him to just oppress the poor. To show, hey, he get even more rich, so he have even more pride. Be, build even bigger buildings so they even were better than himself. So we finally see the punishment of what's to happen. In the next section, in verse 31 to 33, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. While the words were still in his mouth, and this wasn't years, and was just milliseconds, all of a sudden, this judgment came down right onto him. And the condition that we know that what he has was called zoanthropy, which now in, from, in medical cases that have been able to determine is when somebody ha- has this mental condition where they actually believe that they are an animal. They eat the grass of the, of the field and they grow, crawl on all fours. And for the periods of time until his judgment was completed, he would have this condition on himself. Modern day, we have treatment for that. We can help someone get out of that. But for the king... His cure was to kind of look up, understand who the Most High was. But during this time when the king would be in this condition, he would be very vulnerable. The king has made a lot of enemies at this time. Anybody could have just taken him out. Anybody could have just took, took, took the kingdom over. But God is so much in control that he would preserve everything for the king to have an opportunity to turn. And we see the control of God there still. Because if God can control everything in our lives, from every small detail, putting them together to lead us where we are, to God controlling, to putting people in our own lives that we are able to confront with gentleness, then God can also be able to hold a kingdom together to preserve this king for him to one day to be able to respond in time to who the Most High is in his life. This is the same king that saw the miracle of having his first dream interpreted. The same king who saw Daniel and his friends go into the furnace and coming out completely fine. This was, the, this was it, the, the moment of why he finally came to his senses, understand who the Most High is. And so we see his gaze next in verse, uh, verse 34 to 35. At the end of the days... I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. 
And I bless the Most High and praise and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, for God, does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And we see a change in the text here, going back to the first person, because back in the early part in chapter 4, in the first verse, he was saying, okay, this is how I came to know who God is. And then he proceeded to say, this is what happened to me. Back to the first, this is my testimony. This is how I understood who God is in my life. This is how I came to know who the Most High is. And it took the end of seven years, the end of the days, we've learned now in this context, seven years of being with this mental condition of being like an ox, eating the ground of the the fields, being wet with the dew, for him to finally be able to realize, to look up, and to be able to be restored to his position. Some things we need to learn about humility is that it, it, it does mean that we should not think of us high, more highly than who we are, but at the same time, it's not to look ourselves as to be more low than we are. See, when we see that God is in control and giving us everything in our, in our lives, it brings us back down to level. But at the same time, we don't got to be so low, but yet we have this confidence in Christ that brings us back to be just to see us where we need to be, see ourselves just as who God created us to be, and for a purpose, really to worship Him. And this final section in verse 36 to 37, the king reasoned, and he had a praise. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords, they sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, the most unlikely guy to respond to who God is, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to. I couldn't help think about what were the Hebrew nation thinking about when they saw the king do this. This was the guy who destroyed the temple of the Most High that he's talking about here. This is the guy that exiled the Most High's people, taking them out of Jerusalem and, and marching them across the desert in chains and trying to take away their identity, trying to make them worship different gods. This is that same guy. So incredibly unlikely to be the one to be able to respond to God, but he did. But that's because Daniel never gave up on him. After he ignored him from interpreting the dreams, after he even threw him in a fire, after he didn't listen to him a second time in his vision. And I realized this because Daniel never saw the king as an enemy. He could have. I mean, he takes his judgment, king, I, I don't care. But what changed and what we can learn from Daniel is that rather than seeing others as an enemy, we start seeing other people as a victim. The king was a victim of his own pride. 
The king was somebody who needed to understand who the Most High is in his own life, but he could understand to live a life in humility because his pride was obstructing his view of God. And we have to remember something in the New Testament we're reminded, even for the king and for herself. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, for this is, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The king's reason returned to him. He knew it was like, like God is in control. Not only that, God has been waiting for him. After the first vision, after the 30 years of just waiting from at the time of the fiery furnace to the second vision, God had been waiting. One day that the king is going to return to me. One day, even after seven years of being in the condition of like an ox, of having the zoanthropy in his life, one day that king is going to come back to me and be restored. He's, he's one of mine. Just like you and I are one of his. And Jesus even touched about this over in, later in the New Testament. He tells about this parable where this man, rich man, or just a man had two sons. The younger son goes to the dad and said, Dad, I can't wait for you to die, so can you just give me my inheritance now? Dad does it. Gives him everything. So everything the son has is given by the father. And so the son in this parable goes out and just spends it. He uses it in whatever ways, but he eventually he realizes, I don't have any more money. He hits rock bottom. And he gets jobs feeding the pigs. And it says in that passage, in that parable, my senses came to me. Doesn't this, my father's servants eat so much better than me trying to feed these pigs? And so in his mind, he goes, you know what? Why don't I go back to my father and to be one of his servants? Wouldn't that just be better than where I'm at? And so the story continues on that as he was going out towards the father, it says that the father sees the son from a long ways off. And the father had been watching for him. The father had been waiting for him. And the father runs out, hugs him, said, you are not a servant. You are my son. I had been waiting for you, even though you blew all my money away. And in the same way, God had been waiting for this king. Even though you wasted all that time that you could use your resources so much better, you are still my son. Because his reason returned to him that God is in control. Everything is from God. And it takes courage for us to believe that. It takes courage for us to be able to believe and to hold on to the values that we have. It takes courage for them to believe, to have hope that, miss, that we're living in between two worlds and that when the world's so counterculture to what we believe in, that we still have hope that God is still in control. It takes courage for us to believe that God has put everything into our lives so that even that the people in our lives that we're able to be able to confront with gentleness. But then how do we keep looking up, though? How do we come to you stay humble? And we can neither be humbled by God, or we can humbly worship Him. I'm actually going to ask Susanna and uh, Kevin to come back up. Um, because today, it's how do we have courage to worship? They're going to have, give us some background for us as we continue in this section. Because one of the values we have here at the crossing is to, be able to give everybody an opportunity to be able to passionately worship here at the church. And what we do with just music, music is that music is just a medium. 
Music is just to help us focus, build, to, 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 all the distractions that we have in life, whether it be the rhythms and the patterns, and to be able to see, focus like, okay, I can just look up for a second, for a few moments in time, so that my reason can return to me that everything that I have in my own life is from God. And that I can build a praise when just to get, build to have this more unobstructed view of God in worship. Because it's so easy for us in our own lives to be able to come to church on Sundays and just sing a few songs, you know, follow the worship leader, yet our hearts are just not into it. Our hearts are just far from it. And Jesus touches upon this even when he t- talked to, in the New Testament. He tells the, the, the people, this was happening. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 to 9, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And we can get caught up in that week in and week out. We get so used to coming to church on a Sunday. I come, I sing a few songs, and we see the lyrics and just kind of follow along. I mean, it, really, if our hearts are not into it, isn't this just more than just a glorified karaoke? But this is different. And for a few moments in a time that we just carve out of our, our weeks that we can just be able to focus our time on God and just have this accurate view of who He is because He has given me every breath that I take and every heartbeat that I have. So how do we do that? How do we keep doing that? I'm going to leave us with three principles that we try to practice, even here today to have the courage to worship here. Because if we cannot worship here, how can we worship later in the week? This is just one of the few times that we are supposed to worship in our lives. But how do we wor- worship when we on our commutes this week? How do we worship when we go back to our jobs? How do we worship when we are preparing breakfast for our kids in the mornings to be able to pick up from school? How do we worship when we take care of others? The first thing is to remember that we have to be worship. We worship God in awe. In Hebrews 12, 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We are to be grateful, grateful to God the Father who put this whole plan together, grateful to His Son who sacrificed His own life on a cross for you and I, grateful for the Spirit who is living inside of us even now as we as respond and just grateful to you had to sing to him that God, we respond in gratefulness because you had given it all for us. And that should just leave us in a moment of awe. Like you, have you ever wondered, why me? God, why did you die for me? What did I ever do to deserve your grace? Which is why it's called grace, because I don't deserve it. <laughs> At that moment of awe, it's like if we were to be, I remember as a kid standing in front of the Grand Canyon and seeing how small I was. Or even when we go to retreats and in the midst of the, the mere woods here, or just the redwoods, it's like, I am so small. And when we realize and come to reason that everything that I have is from God, it's like, what was the last time I was just shaken by being in His presence? next thing is when we realize that we worship God in awe, the second thing is that we worship God with abandon. And this means that I just do not care what people think about when I worship. 
I have no self-consciousness of what the person next to me is even doing. Like, you know what? This is between me and God. I am focused. I love what David says here. King David, he says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. He's a king. He doesn't dance. But in this time of worship, and in this time, and the ark was returned to the city. He's like, I'm going to worship. I'm going to praise God. I'm going to dance like nobody, can, nobody cares. A dignitary, he doesn't do that. He looks so awkward that his wife says, you look like an idiot. But he doesn't care. I love his response. He says that I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. You cannot stop me from worshiping my own God. Thirdly, we need to worship God in intimacy. Same king, King David. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David could have asked for anything. He could ask for more wisdom. I could ask for more power. I could ask for thing that he wanted was just this intimacy with God. To be able to be close to him. Like, you know, I, I just want to be able to focus on you and who you are because of all that you've done in my life. Couldn't we do that as a church? I'm going to ask the rest of the worship team, you guys can come back up as we transition our time in a time of worship. But just imagine for a moment, what if our worship could match that of King David? What if our worship could, ma- could match even that of, dare I say, King Nebuchadnezzar? <laughs> to be able to say, I extol you and to praise you to God because who, or who you are, just not even care about what others think. But imagine of us here as a church, if we are going to be the ones to be able to be able to worship God with awe. That all of us can be able to worship God with abandon, that we, we can worship God with intimacy, wouldn't that just be a little bit more easier to worship together? Because we worship a God because he is victorious. We worship a God because he is no longer in the grave. We worship a God because he, our sins are no longer in our lives. And that's why we can lift our hands in praise because we just don't care what other people think. We hold up our hands and surrender because we want to give it all to him. And for what he will continue to do in our lives. The church, I'm going to ask you one thing. Would you guys stand with me as we continue to worship in this time with God?